Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom of Borderline. Ah, there I go doing it again. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and the host. So glad to have you here with me. We're going to be talking today about how to change the distorted core beliefs. What's that process like? I don't always call them distorted core beliefs. Sometimes I call them fundamental misperceptions. Or I call them uh, your emotional algorithm. Whatever you want to call them, they are subconscious or unconscious beliefs or perspectives about some very fundamental things that, as humans, we have to be able to perceive and understand accurately in order for us to be able to enjoy inner contentment. So you might say, well, that sounds very difficult to get down to something that's subconscious or unconscious and authentically change it. We're going to talk today about what that process looks like. But before we get into that, I want to tell you about thelastsymptom.com. That's my website full of free resources. There are also some paid services there that you can schedule with me. For example, you can schedule a one-on-one conversation with me, and maybe I can help you figure some things out. The most important thing i got to tell you about right now is that in two weeks, in two very short weeks, they're going to fly by. My very first structured class that I'm offering will begin There are currently about four or five spots still available. So if you're interested in a structured approach to set down a treasure trove of profound fundamental insights that you will then continue to be able to build upon for years to come in your own efforts, then I'd recommend that you get right on that, run over to thelastsymptom.com, sign up for that that course. It is a paid course. So, uh, you know, I don't want you to get over there and feel like I suckered you into uh, into it. Although there are a few free spots in the class that I have uh, set aside for those who uh, can't afford to financially reimburse me for the time and work that I've put into this program. So that's really, uh, you know, I'm as the, the days are counting down, that's really what I'm, I'm trying to keep at the forefront of everybody's attention, that that class is beginning here in just two weeks It's going to be very beneficial. I'm very happy for the people who are already signed up and enrolled for that. It's going to be a truly great experience for them. Some of the details of this structured course, it's going to be from uh, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. every weeknight for two weeks. And that's 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Standard Eastern Time or Eastern Standard Time, however you say it. I don't, I'm not sure. New York Time. All right. So if that schedule 
works for you no matter where you're at in the world. And if your circumstances allow for it, we would love for you to enroll and join us for this experience. Also, before we get into uh, today's big discussion, I haven't had a lot of time lately to just small talk with you. And uh, there's a story I've been wanting to share with you that I just, (laughs) it's just a story that I think is pretty funny, but it's a true story that happened to me years ago. I've always wanted to fit it into the end of the program, into the uh, encouraging finale portion of the show. The problem is that the song that I use for the encouraging finale would have to be about 15 minutes longer (laughs) in order for me to, to do the story justice. So instead of cramming this rich story into a two and a half, three minute song, I figured, well, what the heck? I'm just going to start the show with it today and and tell you all about this this fellow I knew whose name was Roger. And I got to warn you, for this story, I'm going to be doing a my version <laughs> of a Chinese accent. And you know me, I don't do accents very well. I've tried Australian accents in the past with very crude success. But I'm just warning you up front that the Roger was Chinese and he spoke with an accent. And so if you're racially sensitive, I just want you to know ahead of time that I'm, I'm trying to do the accent so to put you there in the story uh, so that you can see how, how these things played out as they played out. So I, I worked for a while, for a very brief time. I think it was uh, six months or something like that in my 20s for a cabinet-making factory. And what I learned from that experience is that I'm just not made for factory work. I just can't handle the repetitive nature of something like that for 8, 12 hours a day. So I I wasn't there for very long, but the money was pretty good. And the experience brought me into contact with a, a short little feller named Roger. He was Chinese. He and I worked together, and he and I got to be pretty good friends. He drove a big, nice big a pickup truck that I was just pretty crazy about. Uh, in fact, one morning I worked on the first shift, so I had to be there early in the morning. And uh, the factory was about 45 minutes away from where I lived. So I would drive 45 minutes and in the wintertime, getting up with very little sleep, driving with the heater blasting. That was a pretty rough drive because I was pretty tired and I was driving half asleep. You know, the heat coming out of the heater was would relax me as I drove. And as I was coming around a curve, getting close to the factory one morning, I did fall asleep. And I'll tell you how I woke up. I woke up and my car was airborne, airborne. I'm not kidding. And so I started pumping at the brakes, which was just comical, you know, because I'm in the air. <laughs> so the brakes weren't going to do me much good. But I was I was squeezing pretty hard on the brakes when the car landed in a field. And the thing is, is that I'd fallen asleep right as I was going around a curve. So dangerous. It's just so dangerous. It's just a miracle that I didn't get killed that day. But everything worked out in my favor. I woke up. The car was airborne. I had I had ramped off this curb and uh, had gone into a, a farmer's field. And so when the car hit the field, you know, I was already laying on the brakes. I came sliding to a stop right at the lip of a creek, engorged with water, come right to the lip of it before my car stopped. I mean, I almost went in. So, you know, I could have died by crashing into another car. I could have died by crashing into a tree. I could have died a 
a myriad of ways, uh, not the least of which was I could have gone right down into that creek and drowned. But I come to a stop, and uh, some people who had seen me fly off the road like that pulled over to the side of the road. It wasn't a very populated road. And uh, they said, hey, uh, you all right? And I said, yeah, I couldn't get my car out of there. It was stuck deep. And they said, well, do you want us to give you a ride? And I said, sure. So they gave me a ride to this factory where I worked. And uh, Roger, little old Roger, after work that day, gave me a ride back to my car. And with that big old handsome truck that he drove, he pulled me out of there. So we, we got to be pretty good friends. And in fact, I used to go to his house to uh, spend time with him. You know, I met his parents. He had grown up in a life of privilege. So his family lived in what was pretty much a mansion. And uh, back when televisions, you know, even the, the most luxurious televisions were small and square. I remember at that time, Roger's family had a huge flat screen television. But at the time... You know, those were projection televisions. They weren't like the flat screen televisions that we have today. And on that big, huge flat screen television, I watched the O.J. Simpson car chase. So that tells you exactly the period of time we're talking about that I was hanging out with Roger. That's right. I got to watch the big O.J. Simpson car chase at Roger's house on his huge projection flat screen television. Well, here's part of the mystery of this story that I'm trying to get to <laughs> that I still can't make sense of. And I tell people this story even today, and they can't make sense of it. All right, so Roger talked like this. He always talked like this. Hi, Brian. How you doing? I say, I'm doing fine, Roger. How you doing? Good, good. Hey, hey Brian, what you do after, after uh, work? You know, I see, I'm just butchering the accent, but you get the idea. He spoke with a very heavy Asian accent. And uh, so when I went to his house for the first time and I met his parents, I couldn't help noticing that Roger's parents were both white. <laughs> and so later I said to Roger, now, bear in mind, I've, I've already known him now for like five months. And he always talked like this like short round from uh, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. So I said to Roger, "What well, you know, I can't help but notice that, uh, that your parents aren't Asian. I said, uh, were you adopted? He said, yes, I, I adopted many years ago, many years ago. I said, well, uh, how old were you when you were adopted? I'm thinking because he's still got the accent, he must have been adopted pretty late in, in life. You know, he must have already been 10 12 years old. Guess what his answer was? He told, he told me that his parents had adopted him when he was about three months old. Three months old. Now, somebody help me figure this out. <laughs> Why, where did he get his accent from? That's what I still can't understand. And uh, sure enough, man, adopted at three, like three months old, brought over to the States. But he still talked like this all the time. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so that's not even the funniest part of the story. The funniest part of the story is I took him up to Columbus, Ohio one time. 
and Columbus, Ohio was about two hours north for us. We went to an event there at the Civic Center in downtown Columbus, Ohio. And at that Civic Center, they had just built on this long addition to the Civic Center, which is right downtown. I think it's connected to the Hyatt Hotel. And during this event that we were attending there, I started to get up to go to the bathroom. I said, I'll be right back. And Roger says, hang on, I go with you. I said, all right, come on. So we went looking for a bathroom and we found, you know, all the bathrooms were like crammed full people everywhere we went. And finally, we walked down this addition that they had built onto the Civic and we found a pretty empty bathroom. We walked in and we both entered a stall and I started to enter the bathroom stall right next to Roger. Then bathroom etiquette took over and I decided to skip one of the stalls and go one stall over. So now there's an empty stall between Roger and I. Well, as I'm getting ready to do my business, I notice that somebody else comes in and goes into the bathroom stall between Roger and me. So now I I pull my pants down, I sit down, and I hear this from two stalls down. I got you foot. I thought, what's he talking about? And I heard the guy in the stall between us grumble. So I looked down underneath the stalls, and I see that Roger (laughs) has reached under the stall and has grabbed this guy by the foot. (laughs) He's, He's... holding the guy by the foot. He thinks it's me. He thinks he's pulling a funny joke on me. And it's a total stranger who's come into the stall between us. I start saying to him, Roger, Roger, that's not my foot. Oh, I got your foot, he says. (laughs) And I said, Roger, that's not my foot. (laughs) I'm sure the guy in the stall with Roger's hand wrapped around his ankle, was wondering, who are these people and what kind of relationship do they have? <laughs> and and the whole experience with Roger, just the whole, you know, I, I reckon we were friends for about a year or so, maybe two years before I moved off. And, you know, life got busy and everything. We lost touch, but uh, <laughs> never a dull moment with little Roger. And uh, to this day, to this day, I cannot figure out why why he talked like this <laughs> oh man surely you guys have stories like that of uh just interesting characters that come into your life and <laughs> you still think about them years later well roger's one of those people for me all right so there's my roger story now uh let's get into this topic about how to change distorted core beliefs you know, the foundation of what is borderline personality disorder or emotional unhealth. How how do you get down to that and change it? Well, we're talking about underlying beliefs that involve an unconscious or subconscious perspective regarding things of an inherent nature. Now, just chew over what I just said there for a minute or two. These underlying beliefs that have so much power over us involve an unconscious or a subconscious perspective regarding things of an inherent nature. That's important 
because when we talk about things of an inherent nature, we're talking about things that just are uh, what they are. Uh, nothing external has to make them that way. We're talking about the way things naturally are. So the answer to changing distorted core beliefs or to getting down to our subconscious fundamental perspectives and changing those things does not involve, you know, lying to yourself over and over and over again with superficial mantras or like encouraging memes. You know, I've noticed that a lot of people, it's very common for people to have their Facebook page littered with encouraging, inspirational memes. The problem with this sort of thing is that no matter how often you chant, I am worthy, I am worthy, or you, know, you matter, you matter, and things like this, no matter how often I chant these things or I tell myself these things, for a person with emotional disorder, this is an example of you simply lying to yourself. Even though you do have worth, you're telling yourself something over and over again that you simply don't believe deep down. So I explained to somebody just a couple of days ago that if I ask you to jump off the roof of your house and I tell you, trust me, just trust me, climb up to the roof of your house, jump off, because I assure you, you're going to float gingerly like a leaf down to the ground. You're not going to believe this, no matter how convincing I am. And no matter how much you trust me in general, you're not going to believe this. Why not? Well, it's because your direct, lifelong, first-hand experience with gravity contradicts what I'm telling you. So, you might want to believe me. And you might tell yourself that you do believe me. But when it comes right down to it, and you get to the top of the roof, and you step to the edge, you simply won't be able to bring yourself to hop off. You just won't. Because again, all of your direct experiences in life, for your entire life, tell you it's a very bad idea, and that what I'm telling you just simply can't be true. So that's what we're dealing with here. All of your direct, lifelong experiences have convinced you that your feelings do not actually matter and that you, yourself, do not, in fact, have inherent worth. Your parents led you to believe this through their attitudes and every experience in life since then has seemed to confirm it. Now, notice that nothing in life has truly confirmed it. No, but based on the perspective you were working with, you interpreted these experiences as confirmations. You already believed a thing, and so when you experienced these experiences, you experienced them with the understanding that your feelings don't matter, and that you don't have inherent worth. So when you experience these things, you interpreted them through that lens. So every negative thing, every embarrassing thing, everything that made you feel shame, 
uh, every uncomfortable or negative experience, you perceived as concrete confirmation that what you already believe is true, that your feelings don't matter, that you don't have inherent worth. So the answer, the solution to this, to fixing this, can't be anything superficial. And it also can't be anything that is able to take effect from one day to the next. So every once in a while I'll get messages, hey, I'm fixed. I figured it out. Every, so I'm fixed now. It's not the way it works. <laughs> That's just not the way it works. And uh, I'm happy for people who send me messages like that, that they're enthused and they're positive and they're optimistic. But it also worries me because it's not going to be too long before they realize that, that they, they're not fixed. Because nobody gets fixed from something like this from one day to the next. It's not just a matter of realizing something and boom, you're all fixed. So you can see why I get worried for people like this, who send me messages like this. It's a genuine concern I feel for them. They're setting themselves up for great disillusionment. When they realize that they're still dealing with the same stuff, uh, this is going to knock a lot of the wind out of them. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rob them of a lot of their enthusiasm. So beware of that. Beware of thinking, oh, I just understood something for the first time and now I'm fixed. That is not the nature of eliminating the causes of these things. The true nature is, is much more gradual. So the way that we change subconscious or unconscious perceptions is that we first identify what they are. This is a process, all right? It might be a word that you want to write down. This is a process. Actually, if you're going to write two words down from this episode, it would be gradual and process. A process doesn't happen overnight. A process is a gradual sequence of things, right? So the first thing is that we work to identify what our subconscious or unconscious perceptions are. This involves getting to know ourselves pretty good. You know, we talk about intimacy all the time and, and often we apply it to other people. But therapy... Um, and recovery from these sorts of emotional disorders involves intimacy with oneself as well. That's all this work is that process of getting to know ourselves very, very well, better than anybody else knows us, except for maybe God. So the way that we change subconscious or unconscious perceptions is that we first identify what they are. Then we work to understand the specifics about how they got there. Were the sources of those messages ever reliable or trustworthy to begin with? Why or why not? What do the realities of our parents' own lives reveal about the accuracy of their own foundation perceptions? Have their perspectives brought harmony, contentment, and peace to their lives? Or have their perspectives brought frustration, disorder, and regular discontent? You see, if our parents were the people we learned our perspectives from, these things matter. How is it 
these foundation perceptions that they have and that they passed on to us cannot represent the truth. How can we be sure they don't represent the truth? How have these perceptions controlled every decision and behavior and thought and feeling we've ever had? Analyze the influences that they've had over you. How you might have made decisions differently. So you can ask yourself, how would those thoughts, behaviors, decisions, and feelings have looked differently if I had instead believed the opposite of what I was taught through my parents' attitudes? What would that person's life have looked like? You know, if I were, if I were raised healthily, what would that person's life look like now? You can ask yourself, when I look around and observe other people in life, who are the ones living content, harmonious lives? And what must their foundation perspectives be? How must their foundation perspectives be different than what I was taught and that I've been living with? So, for the record, the two unhealthy perceptions that uh, form the foundation of emotional unhealth are... Number one, my feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of inherent worth. And so am I. The opposite of this is my feelings are never good or bad, right or wrong, and I inherently matter. Remember what I said about the relevance of the word inherent? Nothing external has to or even can supply what is inherent. So if you inherently matter, you bring this to life. Nothing external has to grant it to you. If you've ever learned a language, you know that a new language is not acquired overnight. So many of you know that I learned Spanish in my 20s. And what I learned from that experience is that the language become a natural part of me very slowly very gradually. For a long time, I had to fake it. So every time I used to speak in Spanish, I had to think about what I wanted to say first in English. And then I had to apply all the grammar that I had learned and all this stuff and uh, translate it in my head before I then spoke it. You see how that's very superficial, right? When I talk about Spanish becoming a natural part of me, now when I speak it, you know, of course, I speak it every day because my daughter speaks Spanish and many of my friends are Latino. And, uh, you know, I worked as a professional medical interpreter, Spanish medical interpreter for, for 16 years. So after all this time, it has very gradually become a natural part of myself. But during that process, what I learned, or what I observed through that experience is that I could spend hours upon hours every day for six years. I did this probably longer than that. probably more like 10 years, but because I loved studying the grammar, I still love studying grammar. I've got books here of the Japanese language, the Chinese language, Italian, French, and Russian. And for pleasure, I can just sit down 
plop one of those books off the shelf and just sit and study grammar of other languages. I just find it fascinating. But back to the point, you know, I would do this with Spanish, and I, and I noticed that I could spend 6, 10, 12 hours a day studying grammar in books, and I could spend just as many hours memorizing vocabulary. All good things. But do you know what the very best thing is that I ever did to make Spanish a real part of myself? I took what I had learned and I went out into the world and I let those things encounter and make contact with real life. I went out, I found real people speaking the language for real, you know, not, I didn't have a club of, you know, Americans that I sat down with and practiced with. I'm talking about going to the grocery store and hearing somebody speaking Spanish two aisles over and going, aha, this is my chance, running over two aisles over in the grocery store just to introduce myself, say hi, throw out some Spanish on them and see how they reacted to me talking in Spanish, seeing if I was understand, you know, watching their faces, observing whether or not I was understandable to them or if there were some things they couldn't understand. Maybe I needed to uh, improve my wording for expressing those ideas or thoughts or whatever. Or, uh, you know, I was getting immediate feedback in real life. So that's what I did. I went out. I found people who spoke it in everyday life. I swallowed my pride, and I jumped at every opportunity to use what I had been studying in real life with people really speaking it, not people speaking it for me or in a controlled environment like a classroom or anything like that, but speaking it in real life. And I threw myself into those situations and I allowed everything I had learned up to that point to come into contact with those situations and uh, interact with real life. And you know, I made so many mistakes. I, I really embarrassed myself. I did it wrong. I did it poorly. But I was observing myself and the results of my usage of the language in real time. So when I do it right, I could sense that. I could sense that in the, the naturalness of a person's reply or the expression of their face, the very natural kind of non-mindful way that they would reply to me. When I did it wrong or poorly, I also got immediate feedback on that. And so I made these observations in real time and made mental notes all along the way, made slight corrections day after day after day for years. And I'm still observing and making slight corrections based on immediate live feedback even today, 22 years later. My daughter's four and when she talks to me sometimes, I take note of her choices of grammar and sentence structure and even some vocabulary words because she speaks it much more naturally than I do, which is funny because I'm one half of her teachers, <laughs> you know. Uh, but her mom's Honduran, and so when she's with her mom, obviously, she gets the great Spanish, and then when she's with me, she gets the, the lesser Spanish, but, you know, my Spanish is pretty good. But my point is that 
I observe my daughter, the way she, when she's speaking to me, I'm making notes of some of her choices in sentence structure and, and vocabulary and that sort of thing. And I make slight adjustments to how I would have said it because I recognize that her way is the more natural way. One other quick story about this is that, uh, in fact, I was just talking to these girls uh, the other night. I'm still friends with them. While I was working at the hospital, uh, they, there was a patient who had had a stroke, an older woman who had had a stroke, and she was coming to the hospital. She was uh, in the hospital getting physical and occupational therapy every day to recover from the stroke that she had had. And uh, I've become friends with their family. And she had two daughters who were in their early 20s at the time. And uh, I'm still friends with them t- today. And in fact, we were just chatting. Uh, the other night, recounting the story about one day, I think it was after, right after PT, the mom says to me, would you like to come down and have a cup of coffee with us? And I looked at my schedule and I saw that I had about 15, 20 minutes open. And I said, sure, let's do that. So we were walking down to the uh, cafeteria and as we come around the corner, and you keep in mind, I'm with these two young girls. They're very proper. They're all very Catholic. As we come around the corner, I saw that they had the gate pulled across the cafeteria, which meant that the cafeteria was not open at that time, and so we weren't going to be able to get in there. So I said to the mom and the her two daughters in Spanish, I said, uh, we're not going to be able to get in there. You see, they've got the gate extended, and the girls' faces turned beet red, and mom even <laughs> started laughing. And uh, she kind of turned in her wheelchair so that I couldn't see her laughing at me. And I thought, what in the world did I say wrong? And I started reviewing in my head the sentence I had just said. And I thought, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm using the right word. I'm using all the right words. The only one I wasn't sure about was gate, the word for gate. So I reviewed that in my head. Checked it, double-checked it in my memory, and I thought, for sure I'm saying that the right way. So I said to them again, no, I'm, I'm sure. We're, we're not going to be able to get into the cafeteria. Look, they've got the gate extended. Oh, they just burst into laughter again. I mean, they just couldn't contain themselves now. Now Mom, she is just like almost falling out of her wheelchair. And the two young girls, these two, <laughs> these two 20-something Catholic girls, they just can't even hardly keep walking because they're... They're laughing so hard that the, they're losing control of their muscles and their bodies. And I thought, well, what in the world? So I, I pulled out my pocket computer and uh, opened up my dictionary. And I looked up the word I was using. Do you know what I was saying? I was saying cock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was saying I was using the word cock that we can't get in there because they've got the cock extended. (laughs) And the word in Spanish is verga. But there's another word in Spanish, verja, with a J. That's the word I was trying to say. No, no podemos entrar porque tienen la verga extendida, I kept saying. And what I was trying to say was, no, no podemos entrar porque tienen la, la verja extendida. Oh, man, I just never, never lived that down. And I told that to a, another friend of mine, and he said, buddy, don't even say berga or berga. 
He said, it's much easier to say reja, and that way you don't get yourself into trouble. But anyway, uh, you know, I haven't seen this family for uh, 10 years, and just a couple nights ago, uh, I got into a conversation with them online, just checking how they're doing and stuff, and, and they said, do you remember <laughs> when uh, you said that we can't get into the cafeteria because the cock is extended? And uh, they said, boy, your Spanish has come so far, so far since that day. But the point of this for our conversation today is that I allowed my Spanish to encounter real life. And I made observations. And I made tweaks. I made slight corrections because I was getting this instant feedback, right? This is the nature of authentic recovery. The formula is... One, sincere desire. Two, accurate education or information, which is what I try to provide for you. And three is insight. Where does much of the insight that is necessary for authentic recovery come from? It comes from observing yourself while you're living life and applying what you're learning and then getting immediate positive or negative feedback. You're you're taking the things that you're learning from me, these insights, and you're going out into the world and you're observing yourself, encountering real life while understanding these things new and fresh. And you're making slight adjustments to the way you approach life and getting instant feedback about that. You see, taking the things that you learn, the insights that you get here or through my articles, or through your conversations with me. And then you're going out and you're allowing them to encounter real life while you observe and make slight adjustments. So this is something I've been telling people lately, that every failure is not really a failure. As long as you're doing the work, as long as you're continuing to learn, the failures are not failures. They're moving you further ahead to where you want to be. The same way that every mistake I ever made in Spanish allowed me to observe and make corrections and progress. The, the same thing can be said in your case while you're trying to recover from borderline personality disorder or from emotional unhealth in general. While you're out there in real life observing these things and getting immediate feedback, these are the things that can encourage you that the new perspectives that you're trying to adopt are true and accurate and that the old ones are false and destructive. You see, they bring you poor results, which you observe and go, aha, that is how that's been affecting me all my life. Or you apply something you've learned, some new insight, and you approach life from that direction and you get positive results and you go aha i see that works that gets me that that has a better effect so over time slowly but surely the old false perspectives while going through this process will have faded away to nothing you will have convinced yourself yes you will have convinced yourself even down to your subconscious that the beliefs and perspectives that you've lived with until now have been false. 
not only will the subconscious beliefs you've been living with cease to be this sort of ethereal, abstract idea, they'll become real to you. But you'll also see how wrong they were. And once you're certain of this, and you've seen that their opposites represent the truth, that they bring you better results, you'll one day realize that you were gradually reborn. And so gradual, in fact, that you'll not be able to mark a date on the calendar for when it actually happened. I've told you in the past that's how it worked for me. It was one day I, I assumed I was still living with borderline personality disorder because I always had, because I always had. But when I sat down to think about it, I realized I didn't have borderline personality disorder anymore. I couldn't have borderline personality disorder anymore because I wasn't being controlled by those false, erroneous beliefs that I used to live with. And I thought back to how long it had been since I had been controlled, since my decisions and my thoughts and my feelings had been influenced and uh, guided by those false fundamental perceptions and realized that it had been a year or longer. And that was when I realized that I was on the other side of it. So I wish I could celebrate an anniversary every year for when I dominated this thing, and but I just can't because I don't know when it happened. <laughs> and that, that, my friends, is the true nature of authentic recovery. You won't know exactly when it finally got completely and entirely out of your system. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us now to the infamous Encouraging Finale. Have you ever seen the movie How the West Was Won from 1962? There's a scene in there where James Stewart is talking to a young girl who's coming on pretty strong to him. And they're talking alone in the dark around this camp while her family is asleep. James Stewart says, Eve, you make me feel like a man standing on a narrow ledge coming face to face with a grizzly bear. There just ain't no ignoring the situation. What a great line. I have a memory like that myself with a girl that I've mentioned in the past. Her name was Janelle, and it's a name that I'm still very partial to. Janelle was house-sitting what I considered at the time to be a mansion, and I went to see her there one night. I could see her face. I could see the trees. 
and I could see the snow pattering all around us in the still, dark night. We stood out there in the dark, talking softly, and my heart was beating ferociously in my chest with the snow falling all around us as I kissed her for the first time. I never had words for that experience until I was watching how the West was won and I heard James Stewart's line. I felt like a man standing on a narrow ledge coming face to face with a grizzly bear. Just weren't no ignoring the situation. Mm-hmm.